Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to our study of the book of Revelation. For those of you who haven't been with us, we are studying through this great book in order to get a picture of what is to come from from God's perspective, what God would have us to know about what is to come in the future. Obviously, this morning in our scripture reading, we read a little bit about that at the very end when God will uh, uncreate through fire this very earth on which we live and recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, Revelation is the outflow or the the uh, the look into all of that, what is going to come in the time known as the tribulation. And so we find ourselves this morning back in our study of that, and we have come to chapter 12, and we are in chapter 12, beginning what we know to be as an interlude in the tribulation, not, of course, an interlude in the chronology of the tribulation, not an interlude in the outworking of the tribulation in time as it is played out on the time frame of history and within God's plan, but an interlude here Uh, beginning in chapter 12, taking us all the way through chapter 15, that gives us a perspective uh, from heaven. John has been writing much about the perspective of what is taking place on the earth during this time, and now we're getting this view from heaven. And it focuses, really, on the ultimate enemy of God. Chapters 12 through chapter 15 is a focus on, really, Satan himself, and thereby, because he is the enemy of God, he, therefore, is also the enemy of all of God's people. And so this is focused on Satan and the outflow of his ending or unending hatred toward God himself. Also, you may remember, we have arrived at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. In Revelation, there's three series of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bold judgments. We are here now at the seventh trumpet being blown. Seven seals have already been opened. Within that seventh seal is contained, really, the seven trumpets, and within the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls. And so you have this telescoping kind of nature in the unfolding of the plan of God in redemption as these things are being poured out. The seven seals have been opened in our study already, and with this seventh seal, seven trumpets were now beginning to be blown in successive order. And so here we are at the seventh blowing, or the seventh trumpet being blown. And we saw that back in chapter 11, and beginning in verse 15, the seventh angel sounded. That just are the seven angels who have the seven trumpets now are blowing their trumpets. And now here the seventh trumpet is blown. And with it then come the seven bull judgments. And they are the most severe judgments to be unleashed upon the earth. That will of course be followed by what we read this morning, the destruction of the earth as we know it and then God ushering in a new heaven and a new earth for all of those who are saved, all of those who know Jesus Christ. And so we are headed in that direction as all of this unfolds. But before we get to the details of the seven bowls of judgment that will be poured out, we are given this look then into uh, 
this history, if you will, the eternal hostility of Satan against God and thereby uh, the hostility of Satan against God's chosen people, especially Israel. Why? Because it's through Israel that the Savior came. It is through Israel that we know Jesus Christ. He came to earth in His incarnation through the Jewish people. And because it was through Israel that the Savior came, Satan wants nothing more than to do away with God, to do away with anything that resembles God, and to do away with God saving anybody. In fact, Satan wants to be God. It's what he's always wanted from the beginning. And so anything he can do to usurp God's plan, he will do. This has been his modus operandi since he sinned against God in the heavens after being himself created. Satan, note that in your mind, is not just some eternal being that has always existed. Satan is a created being. Created, in fact, as the most beautiful of all the angels that God ever created, and yet he saw himself in such a way with pride in his heart by which he raised himself up against God and thereby was confirmed in his lostness. Satan can never be saved. All those that Satan swept away in the heavenly realms, the third of the angelic beings that he swept away that we've already looked at and thought about, that in fact verse 4 of chapter 12 tells us a third of the stars of heaven, that's angels, a third of those, they're confirmed in their unholiness. They cannot be saved. Two-thirds of the angels that God created weren't swept away in his demise and they are confirmed in their holiness they can never be lost but they do not know what it's like to be lost and yet be saved they do not know what it's like to be us that's why first peter says they look into the things and wonder they don't know what it's like to be lost and be brought back through christ but satan and his and the demons cannot be saved and ever since satan fell A spiritual war has been waged by him against God and against God's plan. And he will not stop until he is thrown into hell and kept there forever. We have been seeing this unfold. We have been seeing this hatred in its full light here in chapter 12. And we have met some of the seven prominent characters involved in the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Just by way of reminder to us, we met the woman, you remember, in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Without reviewing everything about the woman, you can get the CD or go online. We understand this woman to be national Israel. Ethnic Israel. The term woman here is used symbolically of Israel. You'll need to get the CD to go into all the reasons why that's true. 
But we also understand the second person, and that's the male child that this woman here, at least in our view from heaven in the perspective of all of this, is uh, this woman is about to give birth to. Chapter 2 says she is with child. She cried out in labor. Verse 4 says that uh, the dragon was before the woman as she was about to give birth. Verse 5 says she gave birth to a son, a male child. This male child, also using symbolic words here, are referring to Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would crush the serpent's head. One would come through the seed of the woman and he would crush the serpent's head and he came to earth through Israel, through the woman. And of course, then we learned last time about the great red dragon that verse 3 talks about. Another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. This is none other than Satan himself. We know that because verse 9 clearly tells us who the great dragon is. It is Satan himself. He is the one who is behind all of the hatred focused toward Israel. He is the one behind any kind of hatred focused toward any of God's people. He is the one who has attempted since the beginning of time to thwart the plan of God to redeem people. From the Garden of Eden all the way to this present day, Satan is working so that souls will not be saved. He hates God. Thereby, he hates all who are associated with God through Christ. He wants nothing more than to stop God's saving plan. He wants nothing more than to simply torment those who are God's children. And even to remove them if he was even able to do so from being saved by God. That is his delight. And so here in chapter 12 through chapter 15, we have really a theology of Satan. Or a a theology of Uh, the demons and their leader. But we also have here a theology of God's divine sovereignty. We see Satan in his works. We see Satan doing what Satan does in all that he uh, has tried to do throughout history and throughout all of God's creation. And yet we see a theology of God's divine sovereignty over it all in spite of Satan's hatred. God will not be thwarted. So this then, in chapters 12 through 15, in some ways is a study of the tactics and vitriol of Satan against the Jews. It's a study in the sovereignty of God, a a God's uh, outworking, God's way in which God, through His divine authority and power, preserves all who believe upon them, but specifically here, Preserves the Jews. Why? Because God promised to preserve them. God promised them that he would preserve them. So let's begin then again by hearing what John records for us beginning in verse 7. We've already covered verses 1 to 6. We'll begin here this morning in verse 7 and go down through verse 12. You can follow along as I read this for us. John says, and there was war in heaven. 
Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Because the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. All of these verses give us clearly an impression that the second half of the tribulation and the conditions that will come about on earth become so much worse than they've ever been before. Even if you compare them to the first half of the tribulation under all of the sealed judgments and under all of the first six trumpets being blown and the judgments that have fallen upon earth and the the sea turning to blood and a third of the earth burning up and a third of humanity being destroyed and, and the rivers turning to bitter water so that mankind doesn't have water and the speculations that have gone into that about what that might be like on our world when all of that takes place. In spite of all of that, it will be monumentally worse the second half. Why? Because there is a cosmic battle that will rage and the effects of it will be felt throughout the earth. It is still yet to come. It has not happened yet. And yet it is spoken from here as if it has already taken place. Remember, I told you in the Greek language there is a a verb that speaks of things as if it has already happened, even though it is yet still future. That's what we're seeing here in the language. And so from the perspective of heaven, it's as if it's already been waged, this war between Satan and Michael, but this is still future from our perspective in the chronology of time, the history of time. God, of course, is not outside of time. First Peter or Second Peter told us that even this morning. With God, a thousand years is like a day. It's not time to God. God is outside of time. He created the time continuum in which we live. And so this is still yet future, and the word war here tells us that this is a, a settled battle. And it is raging in heaven. Remember, by the way, that back in verse 6, the woman fleeing to the place of refuge, the woman being Israel, will be for us revisited again back in verse 13. After the dragon is thrown down, he begins to persecute the woman, and once again in verse 14, she is swept away to the place of refuge. 
And so from verse 6 to verse 13, you have this war going on in heaven. And so our concentration is in heaven alone. And there is war in verses 7 through 9. And there is worship in verses 11 or 10 through 12. War and worship. And as I was thinking about this and had my notes written, there was another word that came to my mind, and that is woe. There's war, there's worship, and there's woe. So let's begin then first with war. John says there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waging war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. I'm always curious when I read the scriptures, and I'm always asking those childlike questions of why, and yet the Bible doesn't always answer those questions as to why. And one of the whys it doesn't answer here is why this battle ensues. We don't know the reason behind why there's this war going on in heaven. It doesn't tell us who even starts the war. It doesn't tell us who threw the first punch, if you will. Our assumptions can run wild at times when we think about this. We can think about all kinds of things. And you read in commentaries, there's all kinds of speculations as to why this war begins and why it begins at this time. But the word order here in the original language would suggest to us that it is initiated by Michael the archangel. It's initiated by Michael under the divine authority of God. It is God who takes the first step through Michael to clear the universe of the father of lies. That's all we really can conclude. This is Michael's job, in fact. This is what Michael does. This is who Michael was created to be. He is the one who guards God's people. In fact, go back to Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 12. Anytime you see Michael, anytime you hear of Michael, he is the archangel. He is the the guardian angel of God's people. He's the super angel. He's the powerful one, powerful angel. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, You see Michael's name come up and Daniel is seeing the same vision that John is writing about in Revelation. This is the tribulation period. We've already been back here a couple times in our study. We were back in chapter 9 looking at the Daniel's vision of the 70th week prophecy back in chapter 9 verse 24. We know the 70th week, this one week, of course being seven years, a week, there is a year's time. The 70th week is split up into two halves. And in the middle of the week, the end of sacrifices comes about. The Antichrist raises himself up as God. And Daniel is very disturbed about that vision. And he begins to get an explanation of it from one heavenly being. And here in chapter 12, we see Michael come in the picture. I'll just begin reading back in chapter 11, verse 36, because this is part of the war that's going on in the earth, conflicts between those whom the Antichrist 
um, or Satan is using as his pawns. Verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. This is the Antichrist. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation of, is finished for that which is decreed will be done. In other words, God has set forth this as part of the plan. This is what's going to happen. Of course, we're going to see that unfold, especially once we get to chapter 16. But even in chapters 12 through 15, as the beast rises, this one will set himself up as God. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Chapter 11, verse 37 of Daniel. He'll honor, instead he will honor a god of fortresses, his own might, a god, of his, father, a god his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, treasures. He'll be an idolater, worshiping a false god, a god of power, and he'll try to conquer other lands. Verse 40, at the end of time, the kingdom from the south will collide with him. The king from the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen, many ships. And he will enter countries, overthrow them, and pass through them. And he will enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Amnon. God has preserved some of them for his own purposes. And then he'll stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans, the Ethiopians will follow on his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath and destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Then verse 12 says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince, notice this, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. This is Michael's job. He is the the one who stands guard over the people of God. And here in the Old Testament and particularly the nation of Israel. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. This is Michael's job. Satan, of course, having witnessed from his own spiritual realm the rapture of the church before the beginning of the tribulation, having been emboldened by his apparent successes in killing the many who have been martyred during the tribulation as they have professed faith in Christ and through the apparent success and power of him to overcome the two witnesses who could not be killed for a time until God told their prophesying was done. We saw that back in chapter 10. Being emboldened by that as the testimony of God seemingly is less and less upon the earth With time running out, Satan is disillusioned that he can now, somehow, in his own pride, somehow, finally dethrone God, dethrone Christ, dethrone the plan of God. Michael, with divine authority, 
Revelation chapter 12, this archangel who stands up for the chosen of God is dispatched to duty. And the war is on. Michael means, who is like God? That's what Michael's name means, who is like God? In Scripture, he is called one of the chief princes. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, he is called Michael, your prince. Of course, Daniel chapter 12, he is called the great prince. In Jude and verse 9 in the New Testament, he is identified as the archangel. He apparently holds the highest rank among the unfallen angels. In fact, verse 7 says that he has his own angels. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels were waging war. I don't think they're his personally, but I think as his rank is within the angelic realm, they are under him by way of ranking. He leads them to war. So this is a war like unlike any other war you've ever seen or heard of, because this is a war in heaven. And it is a war against the dragon, and notice his angels in verse 7. This is an angelic war. This is a spiritual war, or at least a war within the spiritual realms. This is a war that's out of our sight. The dragon, of course, we know he is... Satan himself, he's described in verse 9 under three different titles. He is the serpent of old, he is the devil and Satan, and he is the one who deceives the whole world. All of those terms describe the same person. He's the one who brought disaster to all of mankind in the Garden of Eden in the beginning of human history. He's the serpent of old, the one who deceived Eve. He isn't to be mistaken as some new entity. This isn't some new person on the scene. This is the same God-hater from the beginning. He's the slanderer. That's what devil means. Diabolos. Slanderer. It's simply saying that to us, he is the one who defames both us to God and God to us. Every lie about God is spun from Satan himself. Every accusation brought before God about God's people is from the devil, Satan himself. Satan means adversary. That's what he is. He is the adversary. He's the adversary of God. He is the adversary of God's people. And he is the adversary of God's plan. Aptly named, isn't he? Says he is the one who deceives the whole world. He's the one who deceives the whole world through his cunning deceptions. That means that the very one who is active today in the systems of our world as we know it is the very same one who is battling here. Listen, don't think that you alone are a match for Satan. Don't think that you alone in your little humanity can simply sit back and say, listen, get away from me, Satan. Listen, get behind me, Satan, and all those little cliche-ish things as if you have some kind of inherent power over the forces of Satan. You alone have nothing. Not even Michael spoke against Satan. 
fact, Jude 9, so he says, the Lord rebuke you. We're never told in Scripture to fight against Satan. What we are told in Scripture as Christians is simply to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist everything he uses to entice you to doubt about God. Resist everything he uses to entice you to not believe the promise of God. Resist everything he uses to discredit the very character of God. Live according to faith and Satan will flee. 1 Peter chapter 5. He is the great deceiver. In fact, there are seven different times alone in Revelation that Satan is associated with deception. Why? Because deception has been the characteristic work of his throughout all of history. He is a deceiver. And in the final days of the tribulation, his deception will reach its climax. Every worldly philosophy has come from him. Every anti-God philosophy, every anti-God moment, every philosophy that men dream up that have nothing to do with God or that redefine God are all from the deceiver. They all flow from Satan. They are all spun by Satan. They are all driven by Satan. Every false religion has been spun by Satan. Every schism within God's church, everything that happens within the, the world itself that has nothing to do with God, Every religious ism that you can think of is spun by Satan himself. It has come from his mouth and it will only get worse. They're all false. They're all lies. So this here is an end time war. And it occurs out of our sight. It occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. Make no mistake about it. Satan's total energies will oppose anyone who is joined with God, especially the people of Israel, especially the Jews. You say, well, why will Satan be so angry? Why is he so angry? Because he loses the heavenly war. He loses the heavenly war and he is completely thrown out of heaven. Look at verses, the end of verse 7 down through verse 9. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Don't miss the emphatic nature of verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. Who is that? The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's why he's mad. That's why he's so angry. It ought to be clear to us that since the fall, since even Satan's fall, he has had access to the place where God dwells in heaven. That ought to be clear to us. He's like the irritating gnat buzzing around your ear. He's that mosquito that you just can't get rid of. Buzzing, always continually buzzing in the ear of God. What's he doing? He's accusing the brethren. He's accusing the Christian. He's accusing before God those whom are God's. The children of God are a continual uh 
flow of slander out of his mouth into the ears of God. He is that constant irritant that you just want to squash. I thought about titling my message, The Gnat of Heaven. That's what he is. His slander is constant. The Apostle Peter says that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's always looking for something to accuse a believer of before God. Like that unending prosecuting attorney who always is going before the judge with a new uh, arraignment charge. Oh, here's something new on this one. I mean, just let your mind go there for a moment in the presence of God, having to constantly listen to the screeching whine of Satan. Always he's there. Always in your ear. He's that black fly that never leaves you alone. That's what makes Romans 8 so sweet for us who are believers, isn't it? Romans 8. For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Now. Go ahead. Make your accusations. Go ahead. Stand before God. Go ahead. Accuse. 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 It doesn't matter. Because right now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see. Romans 8.31 If God is for us. Who can be against us? It doesn't matter. If God's for us. Go ahead Satan. Do your deal. He's always trying, always slandering, always seeking someone to devour, always working to usurp God, to usurp God's plan. But we have a constant advocate with the Father, don't we? We have Jesus Christ, the righteous. He intercedes on our behalf. Satan may be there accusing, but God sees Christ. And with all of that, there's coming a day when Satan will be thrown out of heaven permanently. The dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down. And they were thrown down. Satan is cast out. Ekbalo, thrown out. Complete and total defeat. They were not strong enough. Complete and utter defeat. There's no place for them in heaven. John is witnessing it all. John in his vision is seeing this. And the result of it is twofold. On the one hand, there's worship. On the other hand, there's woe. On one hand, there's great praise. And on the other hand, there's coming severe persecution. Look at what he says in verses 10 And following, and I heard a voice in heaven saying, a loud voice. This isn't a quiet voice. This isn't something you go, oh, wait, wait, I think I'm hearing something. No, this is clear. It is loud. John hears it with clarity. This is what heaven is saying as Satan is being thrown down. Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Worship is going on in heaven. What a glorious day in the realm of heaven. The purging of heaven is complete. Satan is permanently banished. In 
And once Satan and his demons are expelled out of heaven and heaven is cleansed of their access, there's praise. You say, why? Why? Because Satan's gone. Here's why they're praising. For the accuser, verse 10, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown out. The devil, the the serpent of old, Satan himself, the deceiver of the world has been completely expelled out of heaven. The one who accuses the Christian before God day and night no longer has access to God. With Satan gone, the reality of the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember what chapter 11 said? Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there was loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And everybody in heaven, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones, worshiped. We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty who are and who was because you have taken your great power And have begun to reign. Now salvation has come. This isn't salvation as we typically think of salvation. As if someone has faith in Christ and they are saved. That's not what we're talking about. This is salvation in its fullest sense. This is the reality of what that means in the glories of heaven as we have inherited all that is Christ. This is salvation in every way. This is salvation not simply for those whom God saves in humanity, but this is salvation for God's creation. This is salvation for the creatures that God has created who have been affected by the fall of men into sin. All of creation groans waiting for the day of redemption, the Bible says. This is that day. All the created things are delivered from the power of Satan. Death no longer will reign. All of that brought into the millennial kingdom as it awaits the new heaven and the new earth. Heaven is seeing this as a completed reality. Even though from our perspective it's in that time continuum still yet to come. This is in the mind of God a completed reality. Now the salvation and notice the power has come. Now the salvation has come. Now the power has come. That's the opposite of the weakness of what God is typically characterized by. Right? Meek and mild Jesus. Now the power of God is seen. Satan throughout the tribulation is going to try to muster all the political power, all the civil power, all the military power, try to destroy God, try to destroy God's people. But now the situation is changed. And God's power is fully on display. Now the kingdom of our God is come. There's no question as to who has absolute control. There's no question as to who has the sovereignty over all things. Now the authority or the kingdom of God is at hand. No earthly monarchy, no earthly democracy, no earthly tyranny has ever been able to fully subdue men. Every one of those systems always ends up in one place, anarchy. But the theocracy of Christ 
the rulership of Christ, to that all will bow. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of His Christ. You know what that means, folks? Bowing will no longer be an option. Bowing to Christ will no longer be an option. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why? Because that brings glory to the Father. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that. Whether you're saved, whether you're not saved, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, as your Savior, you will bow to Christ. Why? Because Satan has been thrown down. He's been thrown out of heaven and the kingdom has come. The accuser is no longer before God, no longer buzzing in the ears of God, no longer irritating God. And on that basis, he's been thrown out. The authority of his Christ has come. Not only the kingdom, but Christ is ruling in that kingdom and his authority is over all and all will come and will bow down to Christ. You see, on what basis... Was Satan thrown out of heaven? On what basis was that happening? Look at verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. You say, well, who are the they here? Can't be the angels. They're not saved. The fallen angels can't be saved. The confirmed holy angels can't fall. So it can't be they. They overcame him. No, it's the brethren. The, our brethren have overcame him. How did our brethren overcome him? They overcame him because, look, at the blood of the Lamb. You see, who are our brethren? Well, of course, obviously, every Christian throughout time in a general sense. You know, Jesus Christ, you're enveloped in his righteousness. You are one of the brethren of Christ, and Satan's accusations fall without judgment to us because of Christ. But we're in the context of the tribulation here. We're in the final days. And in the context, this is not all Christians in general. This is, I believe, the martyred saints of the tribulation. They overcame him. He's been killing them since the beginning of that time, since the beginning of the tribulation, since the first three and a half years. And now he set himself up as the ruler, the God of earth. He has destroyed the temple worship that the Jews have been allowed to set up in the first half of the tribulation. And now he's killed many of them. Remember the martyrs under the throne? Crying out for vindication? Well, they overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. The same way that the atonement paid for our sin, it has paid for their sin. They are hidden in Christ. That's what he's saying. They're hidden in Christ. They overcame by Christ. They overcame by the atonement. They overcame because Christ shed his blood. They overcame all the accusations of the devil by the agency of Christ shed blood for them. And notice, notice the word of their testimony proved that. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, they did not love their life even to death. You see, the word testimony is, is the same root word in the original language where we get martyr. 
they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and they were martyred for it. They died because of their testimony, because they would not recant Christ. They loved Christ even to the point of death. You see, their death was the secondary result of the first reality. They willingly died because they rested in Christ. These believers, far from being discouraged by satanic accusations and persecutions, were all the more motivated to sacrificial service for God in that way. You see, each one of these gave a fearless, faithful testimony, even to the point of death. They lived it out in every detail. They lived out what Jesus said about true discipleship in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Here's what it says. If anyone comes to me, he doesn't mean in proximity. He means by faith. If anyone believes in me, if anyone comes to me, if anyone says they're, they're a part of me, that's what he's meaning when that, in that phrase. If anyone comes to me and does not, listen, hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Don't misconstrue the word here, the hate word that's in that verse. He doesn't mean hate with the sense of of the kind of hate that you and I think about in a human realm. He means if you don't come to Christ and love everything else less than you love Christ, that's the view of it. If everything else doesn't look to you as if you hate it in comparison to your love for Christ because of your faith in Christ, if that's not your life, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. He's not saying you attain that. He's saying that's the outworking of it. Christ set the standard for discipleship. And these Christians at that very moment, at that moment of crisis, when a choice had to be made, when a a literal life choice had to be made, deny Christ and live, accept Christ, proclaim Christ and die, literally have your life taken, they chose death. Why? Because they did not love their life even to death. They chose to deny self rather than to deny Christ. They overcame Him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of their life proved it. You see, earth viewed it as a defeat. Earth viewed it as a victory over them. Those who were killing them viewed it as, see, we told you so. We're going to take your life. You're done. You're no longer existing. And yet God in heaven saw it as victory. Rejoicing. In fact, verse 12 says, notice, for this reason rejoice, O heavens. For this reason rejoice, and all you who dwell in the glories of heaven, rejoice for that reason. Rejoice that the brethren overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and their life testimony shows that they truly know Christ. That's what heaven rejoices over. War in heaven, worship in heaven, and woe on earth. Woe on earth. Verse 12 says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Why? Because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he only has a short time. Woe to the earth 
Satan has been thrown down to the earth. Whoa, watch out. Until Christ comes in these final days of tribulation, watch out. Why? Because he's on a rampage. He is the accuser and, and his accusation role in heaven is over, but his pu- uh, per- persecution role is only heightened. Why? Because he only has a short time left. Short time, by the way, we know how much time that is because of the context of this passage, the 1260 days, the time, times, and half a time in verse 14. It's three and a half years. That's how much time he has left in this context. He knows it. When this plays it out, he has three and a half years. He only has a little time in comparison to all eternity in which he has existed up to this point. That's a whole lot less time. He's been in God's ears for thousands of years, accusing the brethren. And when he's cast out, he's not happy. He knows that his last great attempt is at hand, and his emotions are running high. You say, how do you know it's emotional? Because of the word wrath. The word wrath here is thumos. It's not orge. There's two words in Scripture for wrath. One is orge. One is orge, the settled thought out, rational wrath. That's God. That's God's wrath, orge wrath. This is thumos. This is like a thermometer. This is irrational, emotional, unthought out wrath. This is just a lashing out out of anger. He's coming down to earth and he has great anger. This is turbulent anger. The emotional outburst that's born out of irrationality. His time is short and he's angry about it. So watch out, earth. Woe. Having been expelled from heaven, he has no option but to make his final stand on earth. And when Satan's on a rampage and the bold judgments begin to be unleashed, is it any wonder that the final years of the tribulation are like never have been ever seen before? In fact, it says, had not God cut those times short, no one would survive. This is surely a time No one wants to be part of. No one. War, worship, and woe. There's only one way to avoid it. Only one way to avoid it. The only way to avoid it is by the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way to avoid it. You can't get out of it any other way. It's only by the blood of the Lamb. Regardless of whether you're part of the church, regardless of whether you're an Old Testament saint, regardless of whether you're a tribulation person, and and you're walking through that, and the day started today, there's only one way to avoid it, and that is through the blood of the Lamb. Without Christ, there is no hope. Verse 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, that's an interesting way to say it, when he realized he no longer had access to heaven, when he saw that he was thrown down to earth, I, 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 my keys have been taken away, if you will. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He is adamant to destroy Israel. But God has promised. God is sovereign. He will not be able to accomplish his task. And he knows his time is short. And he is hot under the collar. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this is what awaits. The church may be taken tomorrow. It may be taken today. I don't know. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll still be around, and this is what awaits. 
Won't you come to Christ? The blood of the Lamb is your only hope. Let's pray. Lord, this is amazing. The words you have written here are so vivid and so riveting, certainly way beyond us by way of our own humanity that we could ever think of these kinds of things and assume that this was man-derived. We know it's divine. We know humans try to depict it. They try to, through their imaginations, dream up things that they think might happen and might come and try to appease their own consciences because their consciences are ringing loud and clear that they're guilty before you. And we know it's true, not because we're smarter than anybody, but because by your grace you have allowed us to have faith in Christ. And so through faith in Christ, you have given us the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. We don't have to be deceived. We don't have to not know. Sure, we don't know every fact, every little detail, every nuance, but we do know what you told us. We can be clear on that. Time is coming when Satan will be expelled. When he will no longer have access to the glories of heaven, no longer be able to accuse the brethren before you, and he will be on earth. Knowing his time short to destroy any vestige of your redemption. Oh, we're so thankful that you're sovereign over it all. We'd be no match for any of that. We're not angelic beings. We don't currently dwell in the spiritual realm. And it's a war that will take place unlike anything we've ever known. We're thankful that you have created those who will overcome that. Because of your divine sovereignty over it all. We're thankful that in ages past you promised to bring one who could save all who would ever believe Jesus Christ came, the God-man, and he entered into humanity that we might know you. And he is the Messiah. He is God with us. He came and he lived that perfect life and he died on a cross, undeserved death for the sin of all who would ever believe. And so we pray this morning that there might be those who would come to know Christ even today. And they may be sitting here in their chairs and wondering and saying, oh, this is frightening to me. I don't want to be like that. And they come to know Christ. And others who may have speculation and doubt in their heart and mind that you would wipe that away and that Satan wouldn't be able to deceive anymore and they would see with clarity the reality of your righteousness in Christ and come to know you. Lord, don't let allow anyone to walk out of here today in their pride and smugness Assuming they're okay when they don't know Jesus Christ by faith. We don't see the heart, but you certainly do. You know their heart. You know what they're thinking. You know what's going on. Take these words, Lord, and use them for your glory. According to the ministry of your spirit. For the salvation of those whom you're saving. And we'll praise you. Even now. Because of our Savior until that day when he comes again. All the way into eternity. And we'll give you the glory. Because you deserve it all. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.